Ciao! Here is a conversation with Angelo Cervone. Dr. Cervone is assistant professor at UDELT and responsible of several courses given by the Aerospace Engineering Faculty, Aerospace Design and System Engineering Elements, Propulsion and Power, Spacecraft Technology, Micropropulsion. He holds a PhD in Space Propulsion at the University of Pisa, Italy, followed by a two-year postdoc fellowship at Osaka University, Japan. He's author of more than 30 book chapters, contributions, and scientific articles, and more than 80 papers presented at international conferences. He is currently supervising three PhD candidates and has co-supervised three candidates who successfully completed their PhD in the past. He has been project manager or principal investigator for more than 10 research and development projects, mainly founded by the European Space Agency. Among other ones, he is currently principal investigator at UDELT for LUMIO, an international cooperation for a CubeSat mission at the Lagrange Point L2 to observe and characterize micrometeoroid impacts on the lunar far side. I hope you enjoy it. To support this project, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, connect with me on Twitter and LinkedIn, and support me on Patreon with a monthly membership following the links in the description. So thank you again for your time. Let me start by asking you uh, if you can present yourself, your academic history and how your research interests developed in time. Sure. Uh, my name is Angelo Cervone. I'm Italian. Uh, as uh, it is probably easy to understand from my English accent, uh, at least I don't know for uh, foreigners how it is, but for Italians, when uh, we hear an Italian speaking in English, we understand uh, instantly that he is Italian or he or she is Italian. Uh, the accent is very, very clear. So uh, I, I think also for foreigners, it's kind of easy to, to, to understand it. So I am uh, currently working as an assistant professor at uh, Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, um, which is also uh, uh, the, the place from which I am uh, uh, participating in Stardust as uh, a supervisor for one of uh, our ESRs. Um, and I have been working here for quite long, actually, because I started in uh, uh, 2012. So. Uh, I am basically now in the ninth year here, so it's quite a long time. Before that, I was uh, working in Italy. Uh, I actually studied uh, at the University of Pisa in Italy uh, quite long ago, actually. I started uh, uh, my university studies in 1992, and uh, I also did a PhD in the same university. Uh, and I stayed in Pisa basically all the time, uh, except uh, uh, two years uh, when I did a postdoc in Japan uh, at Osaka University. So I have also uh, experienced a quite uh, different uh, uh, working environment. Uh, it's, uh, it's a completely different uh, working philosophy and uh, style of working that they have in Japan. Uh, Can you expand a bit on that? I'm curious about. Um, well, it's uh, kind of well known, actually. Uh, people are uh, more or less aware of how it works there. Um, the working philosophy in general, uh, including working at university, is um, really giving a central, uh, um, a central uh, place to work in the sense that uh, uh, your work and your work environment is considered the kind of uh, 
another family. And people had to really devote themselves uh, uh, to work, um, really to uh, feel themselves as a part of a team uh, in the work environment. Uh, uh, I said have to, but it's uh, uh, not even uh, an obligation. It's uh, really a culture they have. Mm-hmm. So they, they do it because it's their culture, because they are obliged to do it. And this means that they spend a lot of time at work, uh, that they, they give uh, as often as possible, almost always actually priority to work. And uh, sometimes for us, it's difficult to, uh, to uh, do the same kind of thing because uh, for us, uh, we, we tend to also give importance to family and to separate very clearly the time that we spend with family and the time that we spend at work. While uh, in that culture, uh, if work needs it, you you need to tell your family, okay, look, I have to go and to to, to spend more time at work. Um, so for Western people, it's difficult sometimes to uh, to to get used to that system. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a bit different because it was a temporary thing. It was just a two-year postdoc, so I didn't have to completely adapt myself to it. It was a uh, tolerated that I had a different mentality. But if you go there for longer and you really work there, then you, you really have to, to adapt yourself, which is not easy. It's a, it's a nice experience. You learn that there are also different um, cultures and different mm-hmm. than what you are used to. Okay, and after Japan? Uh, then I went back to Italy uh, and I continued uh, working. Uh, uh, actually, I did my PhD uh, uh, also working at the same time uh, in a, a SME that was a spin-off of the university. So I was already working there during PhD and I continued working there after the postdoc in Japan. Uh, I was a, a project manager of um, several projects related to space propulsion mostly funded by the European Space Agency. Okay, and then you went to DELT? And uh, yeah, because uh, uh, in Italy I had some uh, part-time activities in the university. I was lecturing in some courses, uh, supervising some students, but I really wanted to have a full academic career uh, with a full-time job at university. So when I realized that this was uh, difficult to to realize in Italy, Uh, then I started looking for other options and I found a good job here in Delft. So this is why I moved. Okay, nice. Uh, So you mentioned your area of research propulsion and uh, I know uh, from your research, uh, uh, let's say portfolio, uh, that you're particularly focused on micro propulsion. Uh, Can you give us a definition of what uh, that is? I believe there is not really a consolidated definition, at least I never found a definition in literature. Uh, So every person has their own uh, definition. Uh, Basically micro, which means very small, can mean two different things. It can mean very small in terms of size, of course, but it can also mean very small in terms of uh, uh, trust level. And in some cases it's both. Uh, of course, very small is really engineering definition because uh, 
it is not uh, easily quantifiable. Uh, we, we could more or less put it in the range of uh, uh, centimeters or less in terms of dimension and in the range of uh, milli to micronewtons in terms of thrust, but it, it's not really a consolidated. Uh, mm -hmm. So it might happen that some people uh, define as uh, uh, micropropulsion things that are also slightly larger than this. Uh, so it's uh, it's uh, mainly a, a big uh, uh, umbrella under which we place uh, all the propulsion concepts that need the significant miniaturization. And then uh, this means also all the challenges associated to miniaturizing the propulsion systems. I see. And uh, I'm curious about that. Is the field of micropropulsion emerged uh, as a consequence of the rise of miniaturized satellites like CubeSats? Or is it a field that has a richer history, a older history? Maybe coming from outside the space um, engineering arena. Yeah, if we talk about size, uh, this is mainly a consequence of the miniaturization of spacecraft. Uh, because of course uh, uh, you, you needed also to miniaturize everything, all the subsystems in order to make them uh, uh, fit into the smaller size. If we talk about thrust level, not always, uh, because there, there has always been a need uh, also in the past, also before the, the starting of the new miniaturization trends in spacecraft for having very small thrust levels uh, that are needed for uh, very precise maneuvering uh, for uh, um, spacecraft, for example, that need uh, very accurate pointing of the spacecraft uh, and so on. Uh, so that there have been actually in the past, uh, even before uh, uh, the rise of CubeSats and small spacecraft, uh, uh, propulsion systems developed, uh, which uh, were designed in order to deliver thrust levels uh, very small in the order of uh, uh, micro-Newton and not only very small, but also very precisely adjustable because that is also the most important point that you need if you want to, to point a spacecraft accurately. Uh, but those systems, there was not really a need to make them small. So mm -hmm. they could also be a bit larger. So part of the challenges uh, related to miniaturization in that case were uh, at least mitigated. I see. Can you g give us the, the challenges associated to miniaturization, both the, the, the old ones, let's say, mm -hmm. the ones associated to low trust and to... Uh, well, well it, it can be uh, summarized uh, in one sentence. That is, uh, it is uh, not possible uh, in general in engineering, but in propulsion especially, it's not possible to uh, just take a system that is larger and uh, scale it down as it is and uh, make a smaller one. Uh, this would be very nice, but uh, it doesn't work like that. And the reason is that uh, uh, all the performance parameters uh, uh, of a propulsion system don't scale linearly with size. Uh, this is different depending on the type of propulsion. For example, if we talk about electric propulsion, uh, what happens is that uh, when you make uh, an electric thruster smaller, you uh, have more losses uh, 
in percent compared to what you have uh, in larger system uh, because uh, it is not as efficient as the larger one. And this means that uh, uh, the power that you need to operate the system uh, does not scale linearly. Um, and this means in turn that uh, uh, very small electric propulsion system have uh, thrust to power ratio that normally are uh, uh, much worse than the larger ones. Uh, and this explains why um, when you use uh, an electric propulsion system in a small spacecraft or in a CubeSat, you can use it uh, only at extremely low uh, thrust levels uh, because otherwise you would not have enough power. In the case of uh, uh, a chemical system or a system in general where you accelerate the propellant not electrically, but thermodynamically in a nozzle. In that case, uh, the scaling problems come from fluid dynamics. Uh, so basically you are making your nozzle smaller and smaller. And at a certain point, uh, the, the Reynolds number inside of the nozzle becomes too small and you have uh, extremely big losses again uh, in terms of uh, uh, boundary layers uh, in the nozzle. Basically, you are not able anymore to uh, accelerate the entire flow as you would do in a larger system. And this is the reason why in some systems, sometimes uh, uh, even they, they try to, to remove the nozzle and to have uh, the acceleration happening with other systems that are uh, a bit less conventional, like for example, uh, um, making uh, the, the particles of the gas bounce in, in the walls and being accelerated by the collisions instead of uh, uh, the, the shape of the nozzle. Uh, so as a consequence of all of this, you basically need to change your philosophy and change your design. Uh, as I said, you cannot just take uh, a large system, make all the dimensions smaller and it will work. Uh, this is not how it works. And uh, you, you will see if you take a micro-propulsion book that uh, many of the concepts that are proposed for uh, very small propulsion are completely different than what you have for larger ones, exactly because of this. I see. And also about components, uh, is there a relation with the materialization of satellites? I mean, uh, uh, is micropropulsion characterized by commercial off-the-shelf components or is that something uh, not that? Uh, yeah. Yes and no, yes and no. Um, if we talk about the thruster itself, uh, that normally needs to be designed uh, more or less from scratch uh, for the reasons that I told you, because uh, you, you, you have to adapt your design and your uh, uh, type of propulsion to the uh, requirements that you have, depending on how much thrust you need, how much uh, specific impulse you need and so on. Uh, but in the propulsion system, there are also other components. Uh, there are valves, uh, there are uh, uh, pipelines, tanks and so on. And uh, normally you try to use uh, uh, commercial off-the-shelf components as much as you can for these other parts. Uh, it's not always possible, but when possible, of course, it's preferred. So yeah, it depends. Uh, it's partially done, but not completely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me shift to the work you do inside Stardust Reloaded Network. Uh, yeah. I saw your latest uh, publication. Uh, let me read it out. Novel 3U standalone CubeSat architecture for autonomous near-Earth asteroid flyby. Quite a long title. Uh, 
uh, also authored by Stefano Casini, one of the listed researchers of the network. Can you present the work? Well, I would say it's mainly authored by him because it's uh, basically his work. Uh, I contributed just in uh, uh, as a supervisor, uh, but he was the one who did the work and uh, wrote most of the paper. Uh, it's a very interesting paper, actually, because um, in this paper, that is uh, kind of the first step in the work of Stefano as a ESR of Stardust, uh, he analyzed um, uh, what are uh, the possibilities uh, for using uh, very small spacecraft uh, uh, for uh, deep space exploration, basically. So what he did, uh, he considered the um, sample mission. In this case, the sample mission was a flyby mission to an asteroid uh, in which a spacecraft uh, does not uh, go to the asteroid and stays there, but just uh, has a trajectory that allows the spacecraft to go close to the asteroid, uh, see it for a certain time, and then, uh, uh, of course, uh, fly away from it. And uh, he used the requirements of this sample mission to check how small can be a spacecraft that can fulfill these requirements. And uh, he found out that, in principle, it might be possible to do this with a 3U CubeSat. That means uh, a spacecraft uh, with a size of uh, 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters, so it's really a small one. Um, this is done uh, still uh, uh, keeping uh, a lot of, uh, of uh, good functionalities for the spacecraft, because in the end you would have uh, the possibility with this spacecraft to travel autonomously from a, uh, a transfer orbit around the Earth to the asteroid, uh, and to do this completely in an autonomous way, so without the, the need of uh, any uh, support from, Earth, from the ground station, and to uh, get some useful uh, uh, scientific data when uh, the spacecraft arrives at the asteroid by using uh, a payload that is made of uh, a small camera and uh, a spectrometer. So it's possible basically to get uh, some very basic information on uh, the, the surface characteristics of the asteroid, which would already give some very good um, uh, scientific insight uh, into how the, uh, the asteroid looks like. And if you combine this with the, the fact that you're, use, you're doing it with a very small spacecraft, uh, which means uh, also a very cheap spacecraft, uh, we are talking of uh, probably two orders of magnitude less cost than uh, a mission that you do with a larger spacecraft. Uh, the, you, you understand why it is very attractive. You, you can uh, get uh, very good scientific information with a lot less money. Uh, and at the same time, you can use these missions also to demonstrate technology, uh, to improve our uh, uh, our design of some specific components and so on. Uh, so I, I believe this was a very nice work. Uh, uh, it is all on paper. Unfortunately, it's not something that has been uh, done in practice yet. Uh, but uh, from what the analysis of Stefano has shown, there seem to be no big showstoppers to do it also in practice. So it would be very nice if uh, we would have an opportunity to try something like this in the future. Mm -hmm. 
and there, there's a let's say a business case for this because uh, you mentioned uh, the scaling of the price uh, there's also i guess a scaling in the scientific return one can expect uh, there is not a, a real business case. Uh, uh, of course, there is a scaling in the scientific return because you you don't have a, uh, an unlimited uh, space in the spacecraft. Uh, you you cannot put all the instrumentation that you would like to. Uh, but still, one thing that you could do, for example, is to have different spacecrafts going all uh, to the same asteroid with different instrumentation. So it would still be possible in principle to and that will would uh, compensate uh, the use yeah. of multi uh, yeah. and the, the most important point is that uh, uh, this design makes uh, uh, the the spacecraft completely autonomous uh, so far uh, there are only uh, two cubesats that have gone uh, uh, outside the Earth Moon system, that are the the Marco CubeSat from uh, uh, from NASA, and those were not autonomous. They they were uh, flying uh, together with a larger mission, uh, and they were relying quite heavily on the other parts of that mission to to work. In this case, it would be a spacecraft that is released by a launcher in Earth orbit, and from there do, does uh, the, the mission completely autonomously. So it's uh, quite one step uh, further compared to, uh, to what has been done so far. I see. And uh, from a system engineering perspective, uh, can you talk about the challenges of uh, uh, going interplanetary with small satellites? Uh, I saw you have papers not only going to nearer asteroids, but also the Moon and Mars, as you said now. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we are, we are also involved in uh, uh, a mission uh, for a CubeSat to Mars to, to to the Moon, for example. Uh, recently, we have participated in studies also for uh, for Mars CubeSats. Uh, in all of these CubeSats, uh, the main problem, uh, uh, not surprisingly, actually, is uh, uh, the the volume budget. Uh, there are not uh, really big problems with the mass. Uh, you can stay relatively easily within the mass budgets uh, and the mass limitations that you have. Uh, even power, uh, it's challenging, but uh, it's doable uh, because nowadays you have these uh, uh, very nice foldable solar panels that can stay in a uh, relatively low volume and then be uh, unfolded in space and collect quite a lot of power. Uh, but the real problem is the volume uh, because um, this, especially CubeSats, are standardized. You, you cannot uh, make them the shape that you like. Uh, and they are standardized not only in shape, but also in size. You have uh, very specific uh, types of size from, from which you can choose. Uh, and it's not easy at all to uh, fit everything in that, uh, in that shape and in that size. Uh, uh, what I have seen, at least in studies uh, uh, to which I have participated, is that the volume budget was the most difficult to close, basically in every case. And in some cases, uh, you really had to make uh, difficult choices, like uh, uh, removing some instrumentation, for example, or uh, uh, accepting compromises in the performance of the spacecraft. One compromise that is often done uh, and it's not often liked by um, uh, 
traditional spacecraft designers is to remove a lot of redundancies. Uh, redundancies are important for spacecraft design because they allow to, um, uh, to, to mitigate the consequences of possible failures. And this is especially important for spacecraft to go very far away to, to deep space missions. Uh, and if you start removing redundancies, that uh, means that uh, there might be cases when a failure of a specific component cannot be uh, taken over by other components. Uh, and you are accepting the compromise that uh, if a failure occurs, then you, you will lose the mission. Uh, many people are not very happy with this, but uh, sometimes you have to do it, uh, otherwise you don't fit your Mm -hmm. and, and the challenges for Moon, Mars are the same or they're specific? Uh... Well, I would say as long as you go to outside Earth orbit, you have more or less the same issues. Uh, what changes is, um, uh, in case you want to make your spacecraft uh, autonomous, uh, uh, the farther you go, the more uh, propellant you need, the more delta V you need, and so the more propellant you need, meaning that uh, uh, you will need uh, a propulsion system that uh, takes a larger part of the spacecraft. But this is typically independent on the size because uh, it is uh, in percent of the size of the spacecraft. So whatever is the size, uh, the farther you go, the more uh, percent of this size will be needed for propulsion. I see. Well, I thank you for your time and uh, I thank you for your work in the Stardust Network. And uh, I thank hope you. You, you gave uh, a clear overview of what you're doing in the network. Thank you very much. And thank you for this interview. It was uh, very interesting to talk about uh, my research. <laughs>